Sometimes I receive envelopes, sometimes I don't. When I do, the amounts vary. As high as 5000 as low as 500 usually somewhere around 3000 I don't have a bank account, so I keep the cash hidden around my apartment. I put the bulk of it under my mattress. I put more in a Ziploc bag and place the bag in the tank of a toilet. I put more in a Captain Crunch cereal box. I bury the bills beneath the crunchy nuggets. I put the rest in an empty box of dishwater detergent that sits beneath my sink. I never carry much cash with me because I don't want to draw attention to myself. James Frey is the author of the memoir A Million Little Pieces. His new book is My Friend Leonard. Welcome to the show, James. Thank you for having me back. It's an honor to be here. James, let's get back to the end of A Million Little Pieces. Where were you? What had you done in that book? It's a rehab memoir. Tell us a little bit about how it leads into your current book. The last book was about you know a stay I had in a drug treatment facility, and it ends the day I get out. I go directly to a bar, and then two days later I go to a correctional facility in Ohio. The last book ends in the bar. This book starts in the correctional facility. Tell us a little bit about why it right about this time in your life, right after you've got out of the correctional facility and right after you've got out of rehab. What made you write about this part of your life? Um, I just thought, I mean, I actually thought both books were great stories, and I thought they were worthy of their own books, and I thought they could carry their own books. I think the friendship I had that, that I write about in My Friend Leonard was was a strange and unusual and sort of wonderful friendship that that I, I felt was worthy of, of a book. This book starts with the end of your friendship with the woman you met in rehab. Her name was Lily. Tell us a little bit about Lily and what happened. Um, I met her when I was in treatment, like you said. Uh, We were both 23 when we met. We were both long-term drug addicts. You know, the facility had rules against sort of romantic entanglements, and we sort of ignored those rules. And she was just, you know, first person maybe I ever met who I just understood me and who I could be completely honest with and who I could completely trust. And... Um, you know, we, we fell in love, I guess, or not even, I guess. And, um, when I left, I went to the correctional facility. When she left, she went to a halfway house and while she was there, she committed suicide. This was a time of finality in your life. Most of the people that you had gone to the rehab center with had either died or gone to jail for the rest of their lives. And you found yourself now with the woman you love had died. Tell us a little bit about where that puts you. You're out of jail. I mean, where does that put me? That puts me in a terrible place. I didn't have any money. I didn't have a job. I didn't have a place to stay. My girlfriend died. You know, things were not good. I I was in Chicago at the time, which is where she had been living. Um, And I just had to try to figure out ways to deal. So I called my friend Leonard, and he lent me some money, and, and I went from there. Tell us a little bit about Leonard. How was Leonard when he got out of the facility? How did he do? I think he did fine. I mean, he was a cocaine addict. Um, He went back to Las Vegas and sort of went back into his old life, just went back into it without cocaine anymore. He actually contacted you, didn't he? He contacted me a couple times when I was in jail, but the first time... The first time we spoke after, I called him. You called him, and this was after you found out what had happened to Lily? Yeah. One of the themes of this book seems to be you, in a sense, growing up for the first time. You're already an adult, but 
you haven't really had many adult experiences because you'd spent the previous part of your life addicted and, and under the influence. So it seems to me one of the things that you do here is start to learn how to feel. Yeah, I mean, I actually, I was, I was 23. I was not an adult in certain ways, and I very much was in other ways. I mean, I think I had many, many very sort of adult-like experiences in that the life of a drug addict isn't an easy one or a pleasant one. What I really had to do was just how to learn, learn how to do everything over. You know, if you learn, I was doing drugs and drinking for about, you know, the ages of 13 to 23, and you learn a lot in those years, and you grow up a lot in those years. And everything I learned to do, I learned to do in the context of alcohol and, and cocaine. And when I had to stop doing those, I had to learn how to do everything over. Um, you know, wake up, go to sleep, go to the bathroom, talk to people have a job or not have a job, um, you know, li- literally everything. I had to learn how to go to a grocery store. I had to you know, learn how to have an apartment. Um, it was, it was. I mean, in many ways, the book's about growing up. I think it's really a book about love, um, you know, love, romantic love, the loss of love, love that exists in friendship. Um, but, but in a lot of ways, it's also a book about growing up. When you got out of jail and after you found out about Lily, the first job you got was working in a bar. This is not the usual choice for someone who's just emerged from rehab. Why did you make that choice? I mean, I got a job in a bar because it was the only job I could get. You know, I was 23 and I had a record and I had a long drug and alcohol history and nobody's going to give me a job. I can't get a job in a bank. I can't go to law school. I can't. The only jobs they're going to get are going to be bad jobs. So I got a job uh, working on a cleaning crew that went around to a bunch of different bars and nightclubs and cleaned them up after they were closed. Um, I did so well on the cleaning crew that I got promoted to doorman of a bar. And and really it was just a job of necessity more than anything else. Um, It didn't bother me to work there. If anything, I thought it was a good thing. you You can get alcohol on almost any street in America and being in a bar didn't make it any more, uh, it didn't make it any easier to, to get it, you know? You kept an iconic bottle of liquor with you at all times, didn't you? Yeah, I've always kept liquor with me. Um, I, I think it's, it's good to learn to live in the presence of alcohol and, um, I, I forced myself to do so. I mean, initially I kept a bottle of liquor with me because I was trying to decide if I wanted to do it or use it or not. You know, I was in pain and alcohol makes pain go away. Uh, sort of longer term, I always kept alcohol around because most of my friends drink. And if they want to come over and hang out with me, I want to offer them a drink. I think it's maybe for certain alcoholics it's a better thing to do because we learn to become normal. You know, normal people have alcohol. One of the things about alcohol for you was that taking that was equivalent to committing suicide, you felt. Yeah, I mean, if I was going to drink again, I wasn't... A, my body was in bad shape from the years of abuse, and doctors told me if I started drinking or doing drugs again that I probably wouldn't last very long. So I knew if I started drinking again, I probably wouldn't stop drinking until I died. And that was the question, you know, live or die. Tell us a little bit about your relationship with Leonard. He called you my son. How did your parents feel about this? Ah, uh, my my real father was thought it was kind of cool. I learned after much later that Leonard had talked to my parents about it. 
Um, you know, Leonard had never had children and he had always wanted to have a son and he was 55 when I met him and I was 23. And so he decided that I would be a son of sorts to him. And he called me a son and introduced me as his son. And he sort of talked to my parents about doing that. My parents lived outside of the United States, so they weren't around. And he always had this rule that, you know, if, if my real father wanted something that conflicted with what Leonard wanted, I was to always obey my real father. I mean, it, it was in certain ways a father-son relationship, which I think was due to our ages, but in most ways it was just a very close friendship, you know, and, and it functioned like most other friendships. We enjoyed each other's company, we trusted each other, and we helped each other and made each other's lives better. Leonard had a friend who was often with him, Snapper. Tell us a little bit about Snapper. Well, Leonard, if you could get him to talk about what he would, did for a living, would sort of chuckle and say that he was the West Coast director of a large Italian finance firm. And he often traveled with a guy named Snapper, who who was sort of a bodyguard and, and sort of uh, an advisor and sort of a driver and sort of a lot of things. Um, Describe but, these two to us. What are the, If they were standing in front of you, what did they look like together? I mean, Leonard was probably five, seven, five, eight, maybe 150 or 60 pounds. He looked like a small version of Gene Hackman. And this, and Snapper was probably six, five, 250, didn't ever lift a weight, but was just naturally humongous and strong and very, very, very intimidating looking. Um, and they were always both impeccably dressed in very expensive suits. After a while working at the bar, Leonard came to you and wanted you to get a new job. He offered you a new job. Tell us about your job working for Leonard. Um, what I did mostly was sort of pick things up and take them places. Um, this is described often as a bagman. Yeah, that's one word for it. Um, a courier, a messenger. Um, but I would, you know, I lived in Chicago and I would go to Detroit and pick up a car and drive it to Milwaukee, not having any idea what was in the car. Just know which car, what car it is, and I know the addresses. Um, or I would pick up a bag and move it somewhere, or an envelope, or a suitcase. Um, and there was a very specific system uh, for getting information and for moving things so that I, I never knew what I moved or who I was getting it from or who it was going to. Um, I just picked things up and took them places. Tell us a little bit about this. It's actually kind of scary when you relate it in the book. The, as a reader, I found myself constantly in fear for your life. It seemed like a lot of the times it seemed like you were just on the verge of doing something that was fairly dangerous. I, mean, I, I think and sometimes, I mean, it was, I got a gun pulled on me once. That was dangerous and that was terrifying. And ultimately that's what made me stop doing it. Um, I mean, it's dangerous cause, just because the fact that you don't know what you're doing or moving or for who and because it's almost 100% that whatever you're doing is illegal. And, um, you know, when, when you sort of operate in a world that, that exists outside the, the the law, you know, a lot of bad things can happen, um, you know the best of which is probably getting arrested. It's interesting to watch your relationship with Leonard develop. 
and I think all of us would really like to have, as we after we read this book, we'd all like to have uh, a mob boss as a guardian angel, which is somehow how, somewhat how the relationship plays out. Tell us about how you develop that as a theme in the book. As you are composing this book, there's an arc to this book, and I want you to talk a little bit about the actual creation of the text itself. I, I tried to just stick to to the course of our friendship, which took place over the course of five years. It was a natural story because the events of it were sometimes fairly dramatic, and the situation was just sort of unusual. You know, a middle-class white kid meets um, a guy who did what he did in a drug treatment center, and they become great friends. And, uh, you know, uh, when I was writing the book, I tried to do some of the same things I, I did with my first book, which is I want to keep readers interested. I want to keep the book moving very, very quickly. I want to move people, you know, with this book. I wanted to make people laugh and I want to make them cry and I wanted to make them feel a huge range of emotions and everything I do sort of works towards that goal, I hope, and it either works or it doesn't. Um, You say at one point, it hurts so much that I stop feeling. So tell us a little bit about how you reach the point where the fear of rejection from a woman replaced for you the fear of falling under the influence of alcohol again. I don't know about that. I don't think I've ever been as scared of a chick as I am of, like, getting bombed again. But, I mean, what I think I was really scared about was when you stop using drugs, drug, drug addiction and alcoholism is generally sort of a condition brought on by an inability to deal with emotion. You know, drug addicts feel things or alcoholics feel things, whether it's happiness or sadness or anger or confusion, and we don't like what we feel. So we take chemicals that makes those feelings go away. Um, for me, when I, when I stopped drinking, I'd never had a girlfriend who, who I didn't meet while I was drunk and who I wasn't basically drunk with all the time. And I'd never experienced those feelings of love without them being accompanied by alcohol and drugs. And so when I started to, uh, you know, meet women again and, and maybe contemplate being with women again, A, I was scared of actually loving somebody because the strength of the feelings of love could be overwhelming. And I was also scared of being rejected because I know how much that can hurt. And either one of those things, you know, I thought could have potentially driven driven me back to to alcohol or to drugs and so I just sort of put myself in positions where I didn't have to to necessarily deal with either of those things or be vulnerable to them. You seem to allow yourself to grow a little bit at at a time through each of the relationships we see in the book. Yeah, I mean, I think that's how it how it how it happens in life, you know, you learn a bit from every relationship you have and hopefully you learn enough so that the next time you have one you're better at it um, and I sort of very deliberately did that whenever I was in a relationship I was trying to learn about myself and about how to exist in, in a relationship and in a world without chemicals and I just got better at being able to do it and meanwhile Leonard undergoes some changes as well and comes up with what I think is a really interesting a way to go completely legal would you tell us a little bit about his how Leonard goes legal? Well, a lot of what he did involved bookmaking, and he had you know a network of bookies all over the United States and lots of customers. 
that's obviously illegal in most places. Um, so what he did is find a place where taking a bet is legal, which many offshore and Central Latin American and Caribbean countries, it's legal. He moved all his all his bookmakers down there. Um, he bought a long distance phone company when the phone companies when long distance was deregulated, and he had all his customers sign up, all his betting customers sign up with his long distance phone company, so that when they wanted to make bets, they called his bookies who were in Venezuela and Costa Rica and the Dominican Republic. He charged them ten dollars a minute to make the call. And they placed the bet, and the only person who's breaking the law under U.S. law is the person placing the bet on U.S. soil. So essentially he figured out a way to legalize a hugely illegal business and generate more funds in the process. That's just so clever. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was very brilliant in its own way. Um, you draw a lot of tension out of very, very small events. Tell us a little bit about the dog incident. This happens after you've moved to Laurel Canyon and to Los Angeles. Well, I, I had a neighbor who had a dog who came and bit my dog. His dog was a little um, beagle, and my dog was a big, giant pit bull. And my dog bit his little dog back. And, you know, the beagle is always going to lose in that situation. And so the neighbor got pissed at me and, and threatened to shoot me. Um, which was absurd, you know. I told him I'd pay his vet bills and not worry and take care of it for him. And and frankly, my dog was on a leash and his wasn't, but it, that wasn't good enough for him, and so he just threatened to shoot me. Um, and, and I had a little help from my friend Leonard, and, and the situation sort of went away. What what happened exactly? Well, I don't want to tell that. Uh, I don't want to tell that. I want the reader to go buy the book, <laughs> find out what happened to my neighbor who threatened to shoot me. All right. I can tell you I, I called my friend who was the West Coast director of a large Italian finance firm, and the situation was resolved. I want you to describe to us how it is to relive, revise, and edit out your life. When I was writing the book, I had a very specific focus, and, and the focus was telling the story of the friendship between me and Leonard and so anything you know the book takes place over the course of five years and, and anything that didn't directly relate to the story of that friendship I didn't just didn't really bother with or, or anything that wasn't absolutely imperative to telling the story that sort of revolved around the friendship I, I just cut away and I mean when you're trying to tell a, a story of five years and 300 pages you're going to have to manipulate time in a lot of ways and you know I just would try to figure out appropriate ways when I needed to. In jail, you read to one of the inmates' porterhouse. Right. Tell us a little bit about your reading selections, both in jail and out of jail. You read a lot all the way through this book, but you don't tell us much about what you read except for A War and Peace. Well, when I was in jail, I took War and Peace, and I got Don Quixote, and I got Lees of Grass, I think I got Les Miserables, and I took those books in because they're big, huge books, and you need long, long stretches of time to read them, and I had long, long stretches of time to do absolutely nothing but read, and I thought it would sort of be a good time to read a few of the books that, that nobody ever reads because they are too big. Um, what happened was I met a guy in there who um, was awaiting trial for murder who sort of became my buddy in there, and he didn't know how to read, so I would read to him 
um, for a couple hours every day. He he sort of got to we got to enjoy the books at the same time, which was 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 cool. And, and when I got out, I just always read because it's something I always did. You know, my whole life I like to read, and um, I've tried over the course of my life to read sort of all the great books of uh, you know literary history, and I've still got a few more to go. You got a job as a writer in Hollywood. Tell us a little bit about how you created that for yourself. Well, I, I was tired of working illegal or low-paying jobs, so, and I wanted to be a book writer, so I figured I could try to make some money by writing a movie. Unlike, I think, a lot of people who try to write movies, I didn't try to write a good movie. I didn't try to write like a, a personal movie or a very heartfelt or artistic movie. I just tried to write a very commercial, very sellable movie. And I wrote a couple that stunk, that that nobody would touch or look at. And then I finally wrote one, the third one, that was sellable. And I moved out to Los Angeles and I sold it to a big studio. And they went and made it. And What movie was it? Oh, I don't want to talk about that. I'm not going to admit that. <laughs> um, but I just kept doing that for a while, writing movies for money. It can be a good way to make a living. It seems like it's a little bit easier said than done. How did you manage to sell it? You know, I just went to L.A. Whenever I'd meet somebody, I'd, I'd try to get a phone number off them, and then um, I'd, I'd just collect phone numbers and harass people till they read my stuff. I was just relentless in, in the sort of pursuit of, of sales. I was just a relentless salesman, I guess. You also made movies, too, didn't you? I made a couple movies. Um, I directed two movies, and I produced three movies, and um, I wasn't ever much of a, a filmmaker. Um which uh, uh, was a good thing to learn. But I did. It was a cool experience. I mean, it was a great experience for a while. Tell us, were you writing these books while you were making the movies? No, I sort of burned out on making movies. So I took a second mortgage on my house and had enough money for 16 or 18 months, and I sat down and wrote a million little pieces and sold it in the in that time. Tell us a little bit about the movie that's being made of A Million Little Pieces. Did you write the screenplay? I did write the screenplay. We're hoping that it's going to get shot in uh, in the fall. Um, there's no cast for it yet. Warner Brothers is making the movie, and Brad Pitt and John Wells are producing it, and you know, I'm somewhat optimistic about it. How does it feel to have gone from writing deliberately bad movies to writing your own book to writing a screenplay based on your own book? Uh, it's pretty weird. It's pretty surreal and, and cool, and you know the screenplay stuff. I, I really, I still just do it for money. Um, it's the writing of the books is the, that's what I love to do, and it, it still sort of blows my mind that I write books and they get put in bookstores and that people buy them and that people come see me when I do events. You know, the last book was released in thirty-five countries. That just is crazy to me and, and amazing and just a dream, total dream come true. Are you working on another memoir? No, I'll never write another book about myself again. There have been two of them out. That's enough Enough of a fry for the world. Um, I'll write novels from here on out. You know, I'm, I'm talking to my publisher right now about what the next one will be. And, you know, we'll make the decision. I'll probably start writing in August or September. You don't know what it's going to be about yet? No. We're talking about a couple things, but not for sure yet. Tell us a little bit about how it feels to have gone from Lily's suicide to now being a married father of a child? 
I mean, you know, I, I lost somebody I loved, and that was awful and miserable and very difficult. And um, you know, a few years later, I met somebody who I who I who I fell in love with, and I was lucky to have her fall in love with me. And now we have this cool kid. I mean, we have a little six month old baby girl, and. I mean, having a child is one of, if not the only sort of experience I've ever had that sort of exceeds anything anybody has, can ever say about it, you know? There's nothing better than, like, hearing your kid laugh or seeing her learn to do something for the first time. I mean, I, I have a good life, and, and I don't take it for granted. Tell me, do you still talk to Lily? Uh, no. You know, sometimes you just got to let things go, you know. She's been dead for 12 years, and I still think about her. Um, I mean, maybe very, very occasionally I'll still say hi to her or something, but no, uh, uh, you know, she's gone, and I know that. We've been speaking with James Frey. His new novel is My Friend Leonard. Thank you for joining us, James. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be back, and I hope to be back again next year. That sounds great. We'll be talking to you. Thanks. Bye.